Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode in the Leading Safely podcast. Today, I have another great episode for you. This time, it is a double feature with my good friends Andy Schoen and Adrian Thompson from Southpac International. Now, I do get both Adrian and Andy to introduce themselves, but I will give you the download on each of them as well. So Andy is the CEO of the Southpac Group, which includes Southpac Aerospace, the leading provider of aviation safety and quality training across the Asia Pacific region, Southpac International, a leader in the HOP new view of safety, and Southpac Certifications, a respected management system certification body. Andy is passionate about helping both individuals and organisations be the best that they can be and takes a relationship-based approach when it comes to doing business. Adrian is Southpac's Hop Lab Manager. He's passionate about developing and sustaining safety excellence in high-risk and complex industries through the delivery of human and organisational performance methodologies. He's built on 12 years' experience in the mining, resources and construction industries as a health and safety leader and a critical risk management professional to where he now supports these and other high-risk industries with the introduction and integration of human organisational performance principles into their organisations. So here is the awesome chat with my friends Andy and Adrian from Southpac. Hi, Andy and Adrian. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy day to meet with me. Um, normally, I do a big, long spiel about who my guests are and, and what they do. Uh, but tonight, we, today, we may mix it up a little and I might get one or both of you to share that part instead with our audience, if that's okay. Yeah, by all means. Um, Adrian, do you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, of course. Um, yes, Adrian Thompson. I joined Southpac a few months ago. Um, I'm uh, supporting the the hop area of Southpac. We do other things as well. Um, but yeah, I've been in around health and safety for a bit over ten years, predominantly in mining, uh, mining construction. Hmm? Andy. Yeah, Andy Schoen. I'm the CEO of Southpac Group. Been with Southpac for about thirteen years. Um, as Adrian mentioned, Southpac as a, as a group of companies does a host of different things. Like I started in aviation safety the 13 years ago when I started with Southpac and the Southpac group is still heavily involved in aviation safety. And then 2016, I think it was, we launched Southpac International to, to kind of diversify into other industry areas. And it was around about that sort of time that we really started to get very interested in a lot of kind of new, new view kind of safety ideas that were really starting to bubble up and come a little bit more into the mainstream at that time. So yes, yeah, so that was where kind of eventually the, the hot lab emerged from and some of the work that we've been doing yeah, in that space since. Perfect. And obviously you run public courses for members of the public as well as corporate um, based courses as well. Yeah, we, we um, the public courses we've been, you know, we've been doing those for a fair number of years and we do collaborations as well with various people, um, probably people have seen our Bob Edwards masterclasses, which we've been running for a number of years with Bob and we've brought other people out too and, and work with them in that way as well. So, uh, but most of the stuff we're doing is tends to be with, with companies in-house, yeah. Perfect. Um, so as you know, uh, I do ask all of my guests the same three general questions uh, and I am an eager beaver in this instance to hear both of your responses or one, whoever's answering questions or both of you, hopefully. Um, so first question is, what do you think makes an effective leader when it comes to health and safety? You go, Adrian. I'll build on what you say. All right, all right. All right. I'll, I'll jump in. I didn't have more time to prepare. Um, 
I think for this question, it was really interesting for me because I think a health and safety leader, um, I didn't want to individualize what that skill set is or what that mindset is because I, they're a function of an organization generally and they're a function of, you know, more things than that as well. So, yeah, socially, they might be friends, you know, they might be, they might have people that, that need them and report to them. So I think my, I guess, key takeaway from, sorry, the, the key thing that I would like taken away from what I believe is that safety outcomes or, or, or good safety performance, health and safety performance, is a broader organizational performance. So the way the organization is resourced is really, really important. Um, the standards they set, the way that they uh, set those examples for those standards, do they just say what they think or, or, or do they actually walk the talk? And these are, I guess, uh, principles and I guess positive aspects which enable leaders to be to be good leaders. And a good leader is someone um, who is not just you know pushing safe outcomes because you know then you're very quickly um, you know running into productivity issues and, and it, you know etc. It, it all needs to be an even balance. So I think if an organisation is set up really well to to enable leaders, um, I guess, to set their teams up best. For me, that's a that's an effective safety leadership, I guess, uh, protocol. So you can't expect an individual, to, I guess, to be out there, you know, swinging the safety flag. That's that's not what safety means. Safety is an outcome of, of you know of a high performing uh, operation. Well said, Andy. Anything to add? Yeah, yeah. I think what I'd add as well. Um, there's so much been written about leadership and what makes good leaders, what makes good safety leaders, and and an awful lot of things you read that kind of it's very focused on. The kind of uh, heroic leader, and I don't think that's always terribly helpful. Uh, it's there's a lot of focus on all the things, these great things that the leader needs to be doing. Um, so I think that how the, the kind of the metaphor we use for leadership is kind of important too. So uh, rather than thinking that the leader is the all-knowing, all-conquering, all-inspiring, all-engaging, and the list goes on, <laughs> and you look at the case studies of these great leaders, I don't think that's mm -hmm. terribly either useful or attainable or even relevant for a lot of leaders. Um, so I kind of like to think of, you know, for a while there, a safety leadership, uh, servant leadership was something, especially the new people started looking at, you know, this is probably a more of interesting model for leadership, servant leadership, it's more about enabling and uh, supporting uh, work and good outcomes. But the problem with servant leadership becomes like, well, at times, at times leaders do need to take charge and servants don't take charge, generally speaking. So um, so we're going to really like the idea of host leadership. It's a, a, a concept that I came across a few years ago. Daniel Humadar actually introduced me to the idea and kind of spent a fair few years thinking about it. And I think it's really quite, quite useful because hosts kind of step forward and step back. So I think good safety leadership, I think if you think about that metaphor of hosting, hosting anything, um, it's quite a useful metaphor to, to kind of to play with because uh, there are times when good safety leaders have to step forward and that might be things like uh, setting a particular standard or calling particular things out uh, but a safety leader just spends the whole time stepping forward just gets really irritating um, and they're not leaving any space for anyone else to do anything either that becomes the micromanager so stepping back is probably a, in some cases an underrated <laughs> an underrated competency to be able to step back yeah. and allow other people to do things. You know, we talk a lot about building autonomy. Well, people, you want people to be autonomous or have more autonomy. You need to give them space to be, auto you know, to have that autonomy. So 
I think it's one of the things I would add is it's this kind of balance, like so, like everything in safety, <laughs> so many things come back to a balance, right? It's like safety one or safety two, well, it's actually both. Is it stepping forward? Is it stepping back? Well, yeah, again, it's both, but it's about knowing when, in, which, which is appropriate. Mm. I'm sure there are some interesting personalities that might have something to say about <laughs> post leadership and stepping back sometimes. So, you know, definitely, and I know in the mining space, there's some very dominant kind of alpha personality types that like the limelight. So perhaps, yeah, it is something that leaders might need to learn. learn well, some people love the sound of their own voice, let's face it. And that's, some of those <laughs> people do true. exist in management positions and in safety yeah. positions. And sometimes 100%. they need to figure out that, you know what? <laughs> I mean, we need to talk less and, and say less and direct yeah. less and take a lead sometimes from, from other people. Yeah, and I think sometimes the solution is within the people that you already have supporting you as well. You don't have to, and I, I, know I certainly have been one who's put leaders on a pedestal before, and then when they fail or they don't have the answer, you kind of unfortunately have to knock them back a few notches and it kind of takes a hit yourself because you're like, oh, well, I thought you, you had everything and you knew everything and it adjusts your behaviour accordingly. So it's an interesting kind of take on things. Um, next question, obviously, is around if you are dealing with someone who um, isn't wanting to change when it comes to health and safety and um, what what would be your words of wisdom and I have had some very interesting responses to this question so I'm keen to hear what your input is I'm gonna go again <laughs> yeah you go Adrian yeah right so I think I guess safety change is isn't very different to, to any change if, if you really look at the way people perceive it you know I, I guess kind of that that kind of loss that they feel when they need to you know I guess be confronted with something that they potentially didn't believe in and now you're trying to force something on people so um, one I guess wisdom is uh, I guess would be to really really understand your why I, I don't mean to plagiarize a very very used term but you know the why really matters and if if, if you really believe in why you want to I guess uh, push this change Let's say something like you know you want to move from one investigation method to another or you know some kind of technical mm -hmm. change versus like a more broader cultural change but something that it's tangible and, and yeah. measurable in the end it's it's really easy to get lost in what you want and people like to be very very prepared for these things and when you to do that quite often you you begin to lose the perspective of the way this change is going to be perceived or you know what what your intended outcome actually is and so that's kind of one component is to really understand the way this change is going to be perceived um, I guess you know from the leaders from the team the team is uh, that, that they're actually harder to get on board so leaders are usually data driven and if you can provide some data and you're passionate enough about this and they trust you and have a good relationship they'll they'll generally get on board unless it's something you know to them ridiculous but but even the most you know, i guess perceivably mundane or, or or benign changes can be really difficult to get a workforce to come across onto um so i guess that's that's kind of a whole other you know change and as i said before you know you need to be a good leader so sometimes stepping back you know helps people you know build that I guess that trust with you as a leader, but then you do need to step forward, I guess, occasionally and say, hey, look, guys, this is the way we need to move. Um, here's my why. I'm very passionate about this, etc." And then, you know, you, you hope that they see it, I guess, in the, in the same light and, and not just as a change for the sake of change. I, I worked in, in, in large organisations where we've been given um, initiatives um, to do, not consulted on, not you know yeah you know 
Yeah. <laughs> had any opinion on, yeah. or you know, does this make sense to you in your little world? Well, that yeah. wasn't, even, wasn't even a question asked. It was just here's the yeah. get it, get it done. Um, you know, so you know, some some change is different than others as well. I guess would be my other wisdom is that you know, really really understand why you want to do it and see it through their eyes before you even propose it, so you can kind of be there to defend it. Mm-hmm. Anything to add, Andy, to that? Yeah, no, I think that was that was all all well said. Change is something I used to talk a lot about change management <laughs> some years ago, and I've become less interested in change management because I've like, I don't know, I've had I've come from different coming from different perspectives around change in terms of like uh, one thing we always believe change is really really hard. That was pretty yeah. much everyone's always said change is hard. That's why you need change management, change leadership, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but then COVID nineteen happened, and almost every business changed completely overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, digital transformation, work pattern changing, all people made absolutely phenomenal levels of change in almost zero time. They go, mm-hmm. oh, well, we thought change was really, really hard to do, but then it just shows that when there's an absolute necessity to change, people can change on the on a dime really very quickly. And we adjusted to that strange new life really very quickly. Didn't necessarily yeah. like it, but people showed that they can change very quickly. Um, so I haven't really fully kind of percolated on that and decided what that means for, for change more broadly. But I think one thing is for definite, if there's, if there's a definite necessity to change or people can see and agree there's a necessity to change, um, people will will change fairly promptly. I guess the, uh, the proviso that goes with that, there was a fair degree of uh, coercion that went along with some of those changes in terms of a lot of people didn't have much choice. Um, yeah. But that's one thing. But another thing that and this is a conversation I was just literally having yesterday with a with a participant on a course I was running for a client, and uh, we'd spent a day and a half at this point talking about hot principles and around learning teams and the importance of them. And then, um, in an unguarded moment, one of the participants made something, made a comment which more or less said, "It wasn't on board with any of this stuff." <laughs> <laughs> quite basic concept, you know. It was like. And I said, can, yeah. you, can you explain that more? And he said, I, I firmly believe I've never met anyone in my life um, that hasn't needed blame to be motivated. And I was like, so you're saying everything you've ever seen people do ever has always been motivated by a fear wow. of blame or fear of consequences if they, did, if they don't do it. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting way. That was his firm conviction. So like, yeah, you say all this stuff about blame, but he was pretty much telling me, I don't care. I don't buy it. I don't believe this blame fixes nothing thing. I think people need blame. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm just sat was contemplating. I don't think I'll ever be able to change that. But this person okay. was towards maybe towards the end of their career. He was yeah. 25 years of experience in the industry. And I'm and that's so to your question. Can can all people change? No, I, I don't. I don't think I think if some people do not want to change, uh, we probably have to be honest and say, we're probably never going to change that person. Yeah. Maybe I'm being too too uh, <laughs> defeatist, but I think we have to accept the fact there are some people who, whatever model we've pursued, and even the consultation and involvement and explaining the case, yeah. there will always be some people who just won't want to change. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that's a realist view. Not that Adrian's view was very light and fluffy enough in the air. But no, I, I think the same. That both yeah. statements can be correct. I think most right. people. Yeah 
will can be reasoned around and just yeah. and uh, they they will they can see this especially this can see there's something in it for them there's something in it for the business yeah. they can see the reason yeah. ration rationale and maybe, maybe engage motion with it too even better people will change but there will always be some people who won't <laughs> yeah and i think that's one thing i know i've worked with leaders before around be prepared that you will you may have those sticklers in the mud that will not change and the way that you um, operate with them within your team may have to be different you know they, they are on that bell curve but they're at you know a different end to where the rest of the group is and that means you may have to behave differently there may be different techniques you'll need to utilize communication styles etc because they are in a different location on that that curve for them mm. yeah it it definitely makes it challenging though i guess as a safety professional or even as a leader if you you do happen to have someone in your team that is against or it, perhaps even for the sake of it which is something that you know i spoke with tristan casey about this and he said you know like surely people aren't sticklers in the mud for um being against change for the sake of being against change and i was like well i i think i've met some of those in my life actually mm. i think <laughs> that does come that to was... culture as well i think that comes that some organizations have do have a very embedded yes. culture Definitely. of resistance maybe i'm, I'm without, not calling out any specific industries but yeah you know you come across some Definitely. organizations with highly unionized workforces where there's yep. been a long history Correct. of tension uh, and distrust between management and the workforce it almost has become a habit and that's what it's fostered on isn't it it's that kind Mm. of environment where you know even if it's for the benefit you know an increase in an eba for example you know we're going to protest against it just because like even though it's a benefit to the employees even though it's going to do xyz it's still we will protest because and it's unfortunate but they are situations that as safety professionals i've cried i've argued i've you know gone home stressed from having these you know head-butting conversations with people but it's something that everyone whether you're new to the industry you've been in it for a while have to understand that you're going to come across it not everyone is on board for change and you know flying the we love safety flag um, so final question then, um, basically, if you had your way with uh, any amount of money, any amount of expenditure and opinions didn't matter and you could create something that would impact the health and safety industry, you know, an invention of some sort or an innovation other than what you handsomely do at Southpac International and Southpac Group, um, what would it be and why? Ooh, silence. <laughs> you can't yeah. say you're already doing it. That is not the answer to the question. <laughs> you got any good ones? Look, we've had electric shock collars. We've had, you know, riskometers. We've had all sorts of fun stuff. So it could be something tangible or something mind-changing. So my kind of spoofy kind of... Uh, <laughs> A novelty item. And it's as, uh, inspired by Bob Edwards, actually. So uh, we always talk about, in hindsight, you know, it was so obvious. Why did people not realize? Why have you not realized that they were about to be involved in this terrible event? If only they'd realized that they were one step away and they just stopped at this, you know, but in the movies, there's this really handy, scary music that plays in the background when something bad's about to happen. So if we could rig up a way of like having the tense, scary music starting to play <laughs> just in the lead up to a serious incident or event, that would probably really help the stop work authority effectiveness. Um, you know, if, if, oh, there you go. That's that music playing again. <laughs> Something's you know about what? to happen. Do you know <laughs> what's actually work. really scary, Andy? I was on a plane on Halloween night talking of aviation, and I'm not a good flyer in any shape, way, or form. And because it was Halloween night, as you entered the plane, guess what kind of music they play? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's not good if you're a nervous flyer. 
no and they, I said what's that screaming noise and they're like oh that's just the scary music I was like that's the perfect way to get me in the mood for a very turbulent flight to come thank you so yeah I think I agree having some sort of music that plays to say hey <laughs> this is what's going to happen tensions building right and Andy do you have something oh sorry Adrian do you have something a bit more tangible there or yeah my, mine is far less creative uh, <laughs> and probably a little more achievable um, <laughs> i don't know music is achievable if Qantas can do it <laughs> yeah uh, i hope Qantas weren't weren't warning you of a precarious flight but um <laughs> so i think i guess in in my experience there's there's some risks that that industries have been forced to accept um and because of this this when i say forced i mean there's there's been very very few ways around it um you know there's basic ones like working around electricity you know there's you know working working in a confined space you know like working on equipment that's isolated these are all highly risky i guess you know items that i wish we could remove the risk but but we can't and we need to forget about trying to because inherently a lot of these activities you know need need that level of risk to be successful so um successful in a broader operational environment is what i mean so but one of the easier things to do back in the day i had a real thing for uh driver fatigue systems in in mm -hmm. um, haulage in yep. mining haulage equipment mm -hmm. I saw. but that's already invented so i can't talk about that but um one of the things that i don't see much advancement on um, if you see my LinkedIn, I, I share a lot of videos around like the use of AR, um, so yeah. augmented reality, um, you know, for the needs of you know even a even like a job site walkthrough. So that's fantastic. And again, I I didn't it's already invented, so I can't you know throw that one out there. But one of the other things that I'm loving seeing a little bit more of it, it's just not very well done yet. Is this kind of wearables concept um, around uh, critical risk? So um, and one of the one of the difficult things to manage in, let's say, a civil construction environment, let's say a, a, a medium-sized project civil construction environment, if you actually went and walked around or you're, you're I guess, a bit of a fly on the wall, you'll identify what I would consider extreme amounts of mobile plant and pedestrian risks. And quite often, it's very necessary just because of that operational need. So, you know, a critical control to operate plant in certain environments is a spotter. But a spotter on the ground near mobile equipment is a fatal yeah. risk. So, you know, yeah. so spotters get, spotters get run over a lot, and it, and it does happen. I was in a business where where a spotter was run over doing spotting, so he was a control for other risks, probably far less um, severity risks. You know, some mm. equipment damage, and it ended up being a fatality. So, um, I would like to see affordable and practical wearables um, that interacted with mobile plant. And inform, mm -hmm. the and inform the mobile plant not with not with um you know noises not with more alarms or you know some pretty lights literally control the machine so turn it off or put it in a lamp you know, do, do something safe the machine has to be safe as well um but if i'm in an excavator and i've got a 15 meter swing radius then mm -hmm. it's not very yep. difficult to have a spotter with a with a watch or a necklace on that's going to inform that digger that you're within the 15 meters, and it's bucket down, it's GT down, yeah, right and then um, or something along those lines. But yeah, so just kind of using technology 
the technology is already there. We already have the pedestrian um, kind of forklift scene. That's yeah, that's very that's very mature, um, mm-hmm. and, that, and 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 that's because of the huge amounts of uh, forklift people yeah. um, uh, interactions. But mm-hmm. other things like mobile plants. So I, for instance, when I was a when I was an inexperienced um, laborer once upon a time, uh, I was using my foot to try to hold a piece of material that a that a bobcat was trying <laughs> to you know, get on its bucket. Um, and it turned out that that the bobcat was stronger than that, than my shin muscles, so it collapsed my ankle backwards. Um, didn't hurt me for too long. It was just a sprain, but still, it was something that I shouldn't have been there. You know, I was just there because we we didn't we didn't think about it to be honest and the system mm-hmm. that that we were working in didn't think about us either it just said hey let's just go do the job and then you you know you're leading into the adaptive nature of humans and we're pretty good at what we do and i at the time thought i was really good at what i was doing however <laughs> 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 Yeah, I could have it's lost just my very bad, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, and your shin muscles didn't agree with you on that part either. Uh, yeah, my my leg and my brain dis- disagreed pretty quickly. But um, anyway, I think that would be a great advancement is to really hone in on that wearables um, piece to uh, for mobile equipment detection. Mm. That's uh, really I just good. I just jump on the back of that as well. I'm I'm not an expert in any of the specific risks that people I, I work with face. You know we more in the kind of the operating philosophy and management and the tools rather than the actual specific risks. But I would agree that plant is one of those real kind of, it just comes, it doesn't matter what, almost which client you're dealing with, which industry you're dealing with, it's, it's one of those recurring things. And I think my perspective is OEMs and the manufacturers have got away with providing not a lot for a lot of money for a long time. In terms of, if you look at a forklift, it costs more than a Mercedes and it comes with nothing in terms of, as, as standard in terms of basic safety sort of uh, gadgets or kind of um, add-ons mm-hmm. and you think that's probably not acceptable really anymore. You should, they should be, the manufacturers should be having more kind of brought to the table. Mm-hmm. So making standard items, like safety items, standard. Mm. The big bits of gear. That's not an innovation, Andy. That's more just like what should happen. <laughs> yeah, like, sorry about that. that should be standard. <laughs> that's not breaking the rule of your podcast there. But that's not earth-shattering <laughs> innovation. That's not <laughs> no, wishful thinking. No, Andy's was the sustainable closure to my invention. So. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Perfect. Team well, work. thanks for those those answers. Very insightful um, you know, answers to the questions. Now, I understand that you um, wanted to speak to our listeners around uh, the adoption of the HOP principles into our old school traditional incident investigations as well. Yeah, so that's another Adrian one. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a few organisations around Australia particularly. There might be others, I guess, internationally. Well, I know there are, but I haven't worked with them before. But let's just call out some pretty traditional methods timeline five wires right so the theoretically one of the competitors of, of safety one is that it doesn't take complexity or emergence uh, into account and safety one meaning you know cause and effect you know has its controls very linear thinking um, very effective in simple you know risk management environments less effective the more complex uh, and emergent uh, the environments become um, so these organizations are looking at one area of safety management which happens to be uh, investigations you know so there's 
lots more work to do in um, systems build, uh, workplace design, uh, risk management, but I'll probably save those until they're a little bit more mature in my mind to be able to speak to. But um, we are actually developing a lot of stuff in that space, uh, Andy and I, um, in the Hop Lab. So it won't be too long before we've got you know, more to say in that space. But for the timeline, Five Wise, so, you know, generally, and the different businesses are adopting this work is done as the timeline, and then a work is normal review, and then a work is named different things. But uh, the theory of the blue line, black line, or workers uh, done versus workers imagined. Um, they've added a new layer, which is kind of the workers normal. And what's really, really cool for this layer that a lot of people don't get to understand until they experience it. <clears throat> I've experienced uh, executing dozens of these activities is if I'm walking through a workers done or a timeline and there's a key area of interest, you know, you know Johnny, you know, sped up when it was supposed to slow down and then the work is normal is you know the work is always speed up you know in that area and then the work is intended to something else you know the procedure says do 40 k's an hour and i'm asking a very different question because now i want to understand the gap between why why the whole team or why the whole department or why the text of the workplace require them to do that and then i'm currently doing a five wires on that so it's a vast improvement to move away from just a simple timeline, say, oh, the timeline, well, that's wrong. Why did they do it wrong? Why, why, why? Um, so it's a, it's a huge improvement asking, you know, how do we normally do it? Because now all of a sudden you've you've triggered this operational learning method and, and, and intent. And with the right mindset, and as long as you're culturally, um, I guess, able to have those conversations in your business, when you can walk around to the workforce and say, hey, guys, you know, how does this work normally get done? And how does it need to be done? Probably more important. Uh, one of our principles is uh, context drives behavior. And it's really easy to look at behavior and forget that the context um, probably had a, a, a very large, I guess, amount of, of influence over why they did what they did versus the, their own behavior or their own, I guess, heuristics. So that's, that's a huge improvement, asking people what is normally done. Um, I think the next evolution on that, so there's a lot of businesses that, that are doing that now, they're calling it either work is intended or work is planned or work is procedure is a new one I've just heard of. So now there's, you know, it's it's definitely developing and emerging, um, sorry, evolving to something which is fantastic, seriously. Um, but my next little bit of controversy, because I know you like a bit of controversy, Regina, is <laughs> I, I still don't know if, if, if we're hitting the nail on the head properly, because once we do this learning activity, we then go and still ask a very linear set of questions. Why, 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 why? To what are potentially very complex and very difficult to understand circumstances, because in the in the construct of hindsight building, you know, reconstructing an event, yeah, simple steps are really easy to look at. But if you actually put yourself back in that environment, there's a raft of different ways people could have, you know, moved or different things they could have thought. Um, but all we're seeing is what they did think, not what they could have thought. So we're seeing, you know, maybe a hundred of, of each slice. And that's what we're five lying on. When realistically, what we end up with is, in my experience, a lot of assumptions. Two reasons for that. One is we, we can't go back in time and really know what they thought. 
So that, that that's one thing. And two is quite often we don't even involve the people that made the decision or were involved in the event or design the equipment. We, you know, we aren't. They aren't with us in the room. So we we very often just kind of plug these gaps with our own expertise and plausibility. I've kind of looked around the room a few times and gone, does everyone agree that that's probably right? And everyone goes, mm-hmm, yep, we, we think so. And then all of a sudden you've grounded the rest of your whys on, on a massive assumption. So I'm thinking that the whys need to be reviewed, um, really thought out and, and honestly replaced with a more dynamic an adaptive work learning tool, such as learning teams, product is a is is something that we um, teach. But um, even learning teams as a method can can be adapted for this purpose. You don't need to do a full learning team where you go you know all the way through learning through to action. You could you could just learn and define, learn and define. So we've got five gap questions. Let's just learn and define, learn and define, and then essentially what we can end up with is a set of data which is so contextually rich um, that it, it, it yeah. It, the improvements on that kind of assumption-based five-wise linear, you know, this equals this equals this, uh, is huge. Just, just, just there alone. And if you did want to then go and extend into another popular method, let's call it ICAM, um, and then you, you know, you want to review this, this, this newly acquired data and and uh, your sources of information and then and then put them through an ICAM method and do it properly. Um, then again, you're going to get some some huge benefits. Mm-hmm. So that's my guess. So Andy, are you getting ready to put your five cents worth on the end of that, or you're all good? <laughs> no, no, I I, I I would agree with everything that, um, that Adrian just said there in terms of um, you adding the um, works imagined work is done into any investigation methodology. That's going to be a vast improvement. But yeah. there's these still legacy aspects not least yeah. the kind of bunch of kind of ground and linear type thinking which you know sometimes is appropriate but oftentimes isn't um so yeah it's moving towards that but i guess the conversation we always keep on coming back to is you know whatever the investigation tool so whether we're going to bring in learning teams we're going to bring in some kind of new investigation tool everyone's always very interested in the tools the new shiny thing and the thing we always say it always comes back to is no point having a new tool if you're not going to change the thinking that sits behind it, because yeah, it's just becoming—it's just a new—it's a new hammer to, to hit the same nail you've been doing for ages. So the kind of for me, the operating philosophy is what's really so important. If organisations aren't comfortable with these kind of concepts at a deep level, work is imagined, work is done. You know the complexity and messiness of work, the fact that uh, there's goal conflicts and, and trade-offs being made on a daily basis by their people, the fact that we don't have essentially safe systems which our people break. It's the other way around very often. You know we have imperfect mm-hmm. systems that our people make work most of the time. It's all of these types of assumptions and beliefs that we, I think, are, are probably more important to begin with than the, than the tools. So. We oftentimes get engaged by organisations. Oh, can you help us do learning teams? And people, I've heard people say, "Oh, you can do learning teams without doing any of this new view stuff." I personally don't agree, unless yeah. an organisation is very much, you know, comfortable with the, all those things we just talked about just then a second ago. If, if otherwise, what the heck is the point? You do some kind of new yeah. investigation, some kind of new learning team. You establish there's the, all these various different influences and oh this is why this worker broke that rule or did this different thing and if the management are not ready for that message all it comes back to is well they shouldn't have done that should they 
So we, yeah. we haven't moved any further ahead. We get this beautiful, rich story of context, but at the moment, it's not interested. That's just an excuse. Well, then it's all been for naught. So uh, for me, it all comes back to those kind of key concepts and ideas. And that's where um, I guess we spend a lot of our time is like working with organizations and helping them to shift along with those kind of assumptions and beliefs and then work with them with the tools. Yeah, we absolutely need new tools in some instances, but the beliefs go go first. Yeah, and I think the other thing too, Andy um, and Adrian as well, when you change your mindset, sometimes you don't necessarily need new tools. Sometimes you can revisit tools that you've previously used as well that have been implemented, but because the mindset wasn't in the right, you know, area, um, it's now going to be effective. And I know I've you know been on sites before where they definitely did that. They went, oh, in instant investigations, let's bring in a whole new methodology that was a very, very different way of thinking, as in an engineering way of looking things as opposed to, say, the old school ICAM view. Um, and the unfortunate side was it gave you the tool, it gave you, you know, things you need to tick off but it didn't change the mindset. So if you're dealing with safety professionals, you're dealing with frontline supervisors who don't have that engineering mindset or that don't have the mechanical kind of, you know, gauges and what happens when this happens and that kind of thing. It's just another exercise of completing the bits of paper, ticking the boxes, answering the questions, and you really haven't determined what happened and what you've learned from what happened realistically. You've just done an exercise in filling out a bit of paper, which is pointless in this day and age. Mm. Yeah, so, so I, I think you're right. And so if you change the mindset, you, you potentially keep some of the tools. But I think some tools that people and organizations have used are so weaponized and yeah, so associated with negative outcomes and negative learning for workers yeah. that you just need oh, to put yeah. it out of its misery and ditch it. <laughs> Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I'm not sure if you've heard other podcasts, but I've taken my name off numerous incident reports before where we've gone down that line of an old school methodology, for example, and it ended up being, you know, operator error, um, as opposed to actually looking at decision-making processes, systems and things that were unsafe in the first instance. And it's like, well, you've used a methodology. Congratulations, you came to this outcome. However, the outcome is what I feel not appropriate and you haven't actually examined the things that led to that, including those mindset changes, including turning it around on the organization and identifying it. So I've definitely, definitely had a few where I'm like, please take my name off that. If that goes to the regulator with my name associated with it, I would not be proud to say it's my work, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Not good, but I'm looking forward to spending time with uh, Southpac in my hot course and learning the fundamentals and and the networking and all the fun stuff that goes along with it. And I appreciate the time that both of you have taken out of your day to meet with me um, and give me those really great um, insights for our listeners as well. So thanks very much to both of you for doing that. No worries. Thanks, Jodine. Awesome. Thanks. How fantastic were those answers to my questions? How do you feel about the concept of host leadership? And what about those inventions? got to love the scary music that will autoplay when something bad is about to happen. So that brings us to the close of another episode, but I can tell you that our next Health Safety and Environment Collective event has been locked and loaded for the 17th of March. Yes, St. Patrick's Day, from 5 till 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. There are some brilliant presenters lined up, plus a very exciting panel discussion on the challenges with current methods of incident investigations. And as always, an excellent networking opportunity. The event is free, 
You can attend virtually or in person. And remember that the aim of HSEC is to bring together professionals from any industry, in any position, at any level within an organisation, to share insights, knowledge, experiences and innovations relating to HSE with the aim of contributing to keeping workers safe. The event is live and you can register by going to hsec.au. That's hsec.au and clicking the link. Until next time, stay safe.